Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox, and in Washington, D.C., I have Ben Olson. Ben, how you doing? Doing great. Busy time of year for you? Uh, yeah, yeah, very busy, um, especially this year. Seems to be more people getting ready for the June test than at least I've seen in the past. Yeah, we're recording this episode today on the uh, registration uh, late registration deadline for the June 2015 test, so this will come out after that deadline. Um, but we're going to have some last-minute tips for how to figure out if you're ready for the June 2015 LSAT. We're going to talk about um, what was going on with the busy registration and the full test centers and that kind of stuff. We have uh, a couple questions, similar questions that we received at help at thinkinglsat.com from uh, non-traditional students, or at least students who think they're non-traditional. So we'll talk about that for a little bit, and then uh, we'll wrap up by doing a logical reasoning question or two from the June 2007 LSAT. Um, first, I uh, my students in my new class last night were asking me, Ben, um, about whether you had kept up with your meditation. I'm, I'm finding that I have tons of uh, podcast listeners in my class, and so they know all this stuff about me and about you. Um, <laughs> so anyway, they they were curious whether you have... Uh, I, I know it's, it's got to be 10 or 15 episodes ago that we were talking about meditation, but they want to know if you, if you stuck with it. Uh, yeah, short answer, I have. Um... I'm no longer listening to the guided meditation by Sam Harris. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I found myself sort of zoning off because I guess I've heard it so many times. Um, but what I do now is I try to focus on my breathing for 30 breaths, which sounds funny, but uh, it's extremely hard, but I'm getting better at it. Like I, I constantly find myself thinking about something else at like, number 12 or 13 and then I start over but I can get to 30 eventually so um wow is that like 30 slow breaths or normal pace breaths or what just normal I don't try to do anything unusual I just count them and you know it it's it's so weird because I'm trying to stay focused on that and then one thought leads to another and pretty soon I'm thinking about something else even though I'm trying to stay focused, and then I realize that I'm not. And it has made me think about what Sam Harris talks about in terms of like waking up, being aware that by waking up, he means that you're aware of the fact that you're thinking. Because so, so often we're just thinking and we're not even aware of what we're thinking and our thoughts are just taking us in whatever direction they're taking us. And um, the, the reason I like... Uh, the reason I keep doing it mainly is because it just, when I do that, for whatever reason, I get very relaxed. And so it sort of feels good to like relax and reset um, and just kind of be more in control, I guess. So um, I'm guessing you still might recommend the Sam Harris guided meditation for people who are like trying to break into it. Definitely. Because I think at first you don't know what to do. It, you don't know what to do. You don't really know what the goal is, and it seems kind of silly. And I think uh, even for myself, still kind of figuring this out in the sense that I don't think we're aware of what it's like to be aware of what you're thinking of. 
Okay. Does that make sense? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I've done a tiny bit of meditation myself, so I, I have kind of an idea what you're talking about. Let me ask you, I, I'm, I'm curious about your, um, the specific 30 breaths thing. Is that a, an exercise that you read about somewhere or how'd you come to that? Um, no, I just made it up actually. Okay. I probably, maybe I did read it somewhere and I don't, didn't realize it and I'm not giving credit to whoever suggested it, but I kind of got the idea from, I think, just Sam's guided meditation in the sense that he's asking you to focus on your breath, and then you realize as you're going through that, holy cow, I just was randomly thinking about something totally different, you know, like going to the beach this summer or whatever, and I don't know how I got to that thought process. It's like when you snap out of it and you realize that you're almost daydreaming or something, but it's not really daydreaming. I I guess it's the same thing, but... Um, I just started like ignoring all the stuff that he was saying and just focused in on that. So that's why I do that. Interesting. And you find, you said it just makes you relaxed. Like, is that an yeah. immediate benefit or an ongoing benefit? Uh, it's immediate. And I think sort of ongoing in the sense that after I've done it, I usually do this in the morning after I wake up. Um, I think I'm just like, going about my day more methodically as opposed to like waking up and being like oh I gotta take care of this I gotta take care of that it's like those things don't become as important I think they're kind of they feel super important when we're anxious or something but then when you do that you're like yeah it's gonna be all right this this is what I gotta do first I'll do this I'll do that and I'm not as stressed I'm more organized and deliberate sounds a little bit like just stepping off of the the the, I was gonna say merry-go-round but more like um What's the wheel in the rat cage? Yeah, the like the rat race. Yeah, just yeah. Kind of stepping off of that wheel for a second and realizing that you you get to choose what you're going to do next, or you get to choose what you're going to think about next, uh, rather than just being subject to whatever passing thing comes through your head in that moment. Yeah. Hmm. And you know, to circle this back to the LSAT. I don't have any way of knowing for sure exactly how much this is helping people if anyone tries to do it. I think there are obviously way more important things to be focusing on than just this. But I do feel like some people in particular struggle with distracting thoughts. You know, they they just can't get into a reading comp passage. Right. Or they can't get their mind away from the person next to them or something like that. And I think this is kind of a way, I hope at least somewhat of a way of indirectly sort of developing that skill or muscle, so to speak, to sort of refocus. Yeah, it also just strikes me as something that it it can't hurt and could help. Mm-hmm. So why not? I mean, if if it's going to take you your 30 breaths thing sounds like that must not take you much more than 5-10 minutes. That's right. I mean, I have to surprisingly do it over and over again like I keep finding myself like breath 17. I'm like, "What the heck? Where was I?" But um, you know, eventually I do it and I stick to it the whole time. It only takes yeah, 5-6 minutes. And the immediate benefit even if I didn't have any other benefits outside of that, uh, are I feel like worth it. Like I feel more clear-headed and I can just sit down and focus on what needs to be done as opposed to just like randomly responding to emails or running off to whatever has to be run off to. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, if listeners are meditating and want to share their experiences with us, um, you can email us individually or you can email us both at help at uh, thinkinglsat.com. Quick question about test centers for you, Ben. Uh, 
this cycle, I have had more people than ever complaining about not being able to get uh, a test center that works for them. I'm in San Francisco, as you know, and I've had tons of people telling me that the only test center that's open in the area is in Santa Rosa. I have another friend who, uh, one of my students who has to go to Monterey. Um, both of those are, you know, Santa Rosa is an hour from here. Uh, Monterey is a couple hours from here. Uh, that seems strange being in a metropolis like San Francisco that they, that they don't have, seem to have enough uh, seats open. Is that happening in DC as well? It is happening. Um, before the first deadline, which was, I think, May 1st, if I remember correctly, um, I was talking to some people and they had tried to register and the, everything in the area was already filled up. So some people were looking at taking the test out in Richmond, which is over 100 miles away. Um, yeah, so I'm surprised. I, I'm not sure why that's happening. I mean, I know there's more people taking the test now, but I don't necessarily think it's historically that high. I just wonder if LSAC underestimated and didn't open as many test centers? Yeah, it's a sign that the bubble is going to reinflate, I guess. Huh? I mean, or a sign that they overreacted to the, the collapse? I think so. I mean, it definitely feels like there are more people prepping, but I don't think there are that many more people applying. I think people are just realizing the benefits of getting a higher LSAT score could mean more money now, whereas historically it just meant a better school, which is obviously something still worth shooting for. But now with the the dollars directly related to how you do on the test, I think more people are willing to prep and take it maybe. Yeah. It, I've also heard of, I mean, there are, I do have people in my class right now who are taking the June 2015 test for their application for this year, for like for starting law school this year. Yes. No, that's absolutely right. I was just, I forgot about that. That's totally true. There are a lot of people in my class now as well who are in the same situation. They've actually applied. They've been accepted. One student in particular, she said that she had been accepted and given a scholarship at one school, but for whatever reason, they told her, hey, take the test again, get a higher score, and we'll give you more of a scholarship. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense for the school, I'm sure. Like, schools are really focused on keeping their numbers up and they're having a hard time doing so um, since applications are still down. So uh, I'm just wondering how this is going to play out next year, right? Because, I mean, the, this is traditionally the time of year when everybody is taking the LSAT so that they can apply at the beginning of the next cycle. Yeah. And now some of these people are taking the LSAT for the very dead end of the last cycle. And mm -hmm. it just seems like the schools are maybe going to be you know, if they're in trouble for admissions this year, they're going to be even in more trouble for admissions next year. Yeah, if they're <laughs> still trying to accept people and those people are now not going to be applying, yeah, next year. It's like they're racking up credit card debt. You know, it's like they're, it's going to come, going to come back to bite them at some point. Anyway, I guess it remains a good time to be applying to law school uh, if you're if you're destined to be a lawyer. Right now, it's a buyer's market for um, JDs. So, yeah, good good news for you. And but I do think yeah maybe there are some signs now that that they're the LSAT is getting um, more people taking it. So maybe maybe it's going to turn around and go back up the other way. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Um. Okay. I th this is going to come out on you know roughly May twentieth. That's going to leave people just a few weeks before the June LSAT. We've talked before about what to do at the last minute and how to how to know if you're ready. 
but I figure this is just going to be timely to talk about now. So um, how does somebody know if they're ready to take the test when, when, when they've got two or three weeks left? How do they know when they're ready? Uh, and what do they do if they're not ready? What do they do if they're close? What, what do you think, Ben? Um, yeah, so I tend to ask people what's the lowest score that they'd be happy with. Um, and then based on how close they are to that with their practice test, and again, they can't just look at one or two. They really need to look at as many as they can. Um, and if their practice tests are kind of in that range, then I would say that they're getting very close to what they you know, will likely score on tests, and so maybe they're ready. If they're not quite up to that score, let's say they're in the mid-160s and they want to get 170, which is a very common goal, or they're in the, the low 160s and they're just trying to get into the mid-160s, um, I would say a couple weeks out, a few weeks out, it's still definitely possible. Um, most people at this point are just taking timed individual sections or timed full-length tests, so they're going to see their score go up as they continue to do that and review those tests. So I would say if you're within a few points, um, anywhere from, say, three to six points of where you want to be, you still have a shot at it. You won't know if you're ready, really, until right before the test and you've taken more tests and you can see what's happened to see if you've closed the gap. And if you haven't, then maybe for the June test, I'd say you might want to withdraw. It would just depend on how close you are to a score that you'd be that you would consider acceptable. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of hard to say whether you're ready until you're hitting the scores you want. And so sometimes you just have to wait until you have more information. Yeah, um, I guess we've stressed this before, but the practice tests just don't lie. So you can tell what you're gonna, what you're very likely to get on the actual test by doing practice tests. Um, I get a little bit irritated when I hear people say, oh, well, I'm just going to sign up and take the real thing just to see how I do, because there's no need to do that, because the practice tests will tell you exactly where you're at. Um, it's a shame to waste $175 and waste one of your three attempts just seeing how you do, um, if you can just do a practice test that will tell you exactly how you're going to do. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I don't love specific number goals but it is useful to think about you know for some people um they might say you know it's not worth applying to law school if i don't get a 150 and uh if their practice tests are at 142 and it's a week before the test or it's the day before the test your advice would be well i would say not to take it i yeah. mean i think that's that's far enough that it's pretty clear pretty that clear that you're not going to get lucky by eight points on the day of the test right yeah um if they were two points away and they were uh, already two signed points, up yeah i would say take it yeah. um i especially i mean you could look it's hard to say even what does two points mean because is that two points from their last practice test or two points from the sort of the average of their practice tests like if it's the two points from the average of their practice test, I would say definitely take it. At that point, they probably even hit the score that they want. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I think we're totally on the same page there. If you're within a point or two, uh, then I think it's worth it to go ahead and sit for the test. But if you're more than five points away, let's say, and you've never hit your score that you're trying to hit, and you're, you're 
you know, you're five points away from it, um, and it's the day before the test, I think you do need to log on to your LSAC account and withdraw from the test. This is yep. a new option. It's only been around for, what, a year or two? You're mm -hmm. allowed to withdraw on the night up to the night before, up to midnight, I guess, on the night before. You can log yeah, into no, it's your... it's midnight Eastern time. Oh, midnight Eastern. Good. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. Um, so 9 p.m. out here on the West Coast. You can log into your LSAC account and you can withdraw. You won't get any refund. It will show up on your record that you withdrew from the test. But Wait, it, I thought there is no record. I think it shows up on your record as a withdrawal, not not as an attempt, but as a withdrawal. I could be wrong about that. Um, oh, okay. I don't I think it matters do. anyway. I don't. I just really yeah. can't imagine that the schools are going to care about withdrawals. Um, if you don't show up, then you get an absent on your record, and that does count as one of your attempts. If you show up and you cancel, that counts as one of your attempts. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. so don't. I wouldn't recommend either of those routes if you are not ready. Um, I would definitely recommend that withdrawal route. You'll lose the money, but it won't hurt your record, and you'll be. You know, it's like it's like stepping out of the batter's box. Um, it's not. Yeah. You know, nothing's going to happen that counts. And uh, you'll still have your full three strikes uh, left when you do decide to step back into the box on the next exam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's really no shame in that, right? I mean, I, I just, I'm surprised how often people just say, oh, I'll just go ahead. I'm just going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, sitting there looking at their score record with them and, and it's like well you've made a lot of progress from where you started but you're still nowhere near where you want to finish so what, remind me now what what's the good outcome here what are you expecting to happen <laughs> if you haven't mm -hmm. yet hit your target score and you're gonna sit for the LSAT what's the point of that um I don't know it's that the withdrawal option is just not a bad option um if you're really not ready I the other point I would like to make about that I guess is that if I if if I if it were three weeks to the test and I was already registered, a lot of times I see people withdrawing three weeks before the test. Mm -hmm. That move yeah. I don't understand either. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think um, yeah, this is the like the other side. So you have the people who are like gonna take it no matter what, and it's kind of like wait, why? <laughs> Hold on. Um, it doesn't make sense for you to take it. But then I think you have the other side where people, they don't want to take it unless they've scored 175 times <laughs> and or even higher. You know, they want to hit 172 because they're trying to hit 170 and they just want to make sure everything's perfect. I understand that desire to be really confident in your situation, but I think there's a, there's a lot, we've talked about this before, there's a lot of volatility in scores that you just can't control. And if you're scoring in that range... I would say seize the moment and take it. Uh, you might get the score you want, and then you're done. And if you don't, then, well, then you take it again. But um, assuming this is your first attempt, I would say go for it if you're in the range. And so, like, along with what you're saying, you don't want to cancel or withdraw three weeks before. You have no idea what's going to happen over those three weeks. Yeah. Um, a lot can happen. In fact, I think that's where most people improve the most. Because yeah. they're actually like telling people, no, I'm not going to hang out. Do <laughs> like get serious and actually start doing their homework and start showing up to class. Yeah. yeah. What's that necessary assumption stuff again? Oh, okay. 
Yeah. I'll figure it out. You so. told me this was important, but I just didn't really study it or anything. What was that again? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, you know, if, if people are going to change their test date, that's fine. Um, but today, May 13th, as we record this, is the last day that you can change your test date. So if you're past the, the test date change, uh, then your only other option is, well, you have two options. You can take the test or you can withdraw. Um, when you withdraw, that's it. You you can't take the test anymore. Um, so why why wouldn't you study hard for the next couple weeks? And who knows, maybe you'll have your breakthrough and then you'll be glad you didn't withdraw. Um, you yeah. can always withdraw right up to that very last minute. So I, I would wait until the last minute if mm -hmm. that were an option for me. All right. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, anything else about getting ready last minute stuff for the June 2015 test? Um, yeah, do, is this a good time to talk about uh, what people, how people should be spending their time? Sure. Um, I, I mean, I can say for myself that what I usually end up telling people is that, well, I don't want to make this more complicated than it is, but I tend to think there's basically three or four things that they're going to be rotating between. The first thing would be occasionally taking a full-length proctored test. Okay. The second thing would be taking individual timed sections, which I feel like are a little bit different because you can review them immediately after taking them, and you can also fit more of them in than just you know a full test. The third thing would be um, I I tell people to to create an Excel sheet and then track the questions that they got wrong, and then to repeat them a week later. And although they may remember the correct answer, what's more important is that they remember why they missed it, because I feel like sometimes people learn that and then forget it. Like they, they go, oh, okay, I understand why D is wrong, I understand why A is correct, and I understand why I messed up here. But then if I asked them about that question a week later, they'd be like, yeah, I, I know the answer is D or, or A or whatever, but I just don't rem remember exactly why. Like if I ask, ask them to explain it, they can't remember. So I feel like reviewing the questions they missed can be kind of a targeted way to focus on things that they've obviously had problems with in the past. And then the fourth thing I would say is targeting specific things, um, whether that's games or logical reasoning or, for example, your, your LR encyclopedia. So basically they're rotating through those four different kinds of prep. That's what I'm usually telling people. But I'm curious what, what you normally suggest and um, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I so I, I don't do anything nearly so formal as you do. Um, gen I think generally I don't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> my, my classes are a bit more free-flowing. Um, my, my advice is always... To, I, I love to just tell people that they need to be doing something every day. And okay. so mm -hmm. I, I try to get people to build their LSAT practice around 35-minute timed sections. Mm -hmm. um, yes, if you can do a full test in a day. I mean, I do have, uh, you know, next Saturday and the Saturday after that, I'll be doing full practice tests um, with my class and with my tutoring students. Um, and I love... It, when people sit for a full practice test, I think it's a really good idea to sit for full practice tests. Um, but a lot of times people have school and work and family and other things and they can't they can't sit for the full practice test. And 
that's totally fine. I don't even think you need to be focusing on full practice tests. I think you, you definitely, though, do need to focus on 35-minute timed section. So uh, if, you, if you never had time to do a full practice test, I actually think it would be okay as long as you did 35-minute sections frequently. And I like to get people in the mode of just doing a little bit every single day. So one way to do that is, you know, can you find an hour? Because if you can find an hour, then you can do a 35-minute section, and then you can review your mistakes. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is really the core of it. I think 35-minute section, review your mistakes. If you, if you just did nothing but that, I think mm-hmm. you would do fine. I mean, I think you would I think you would learn a lot from just doing 35-minute sections and reviewing your mistakes. Yeah. Um the reviewing your mistakes, you know, then it's a question of how do you do that? And I I do like your idea Ben of reviewing it, figuring it out and then putting it away and coming back to it a week later. Um that's there's some again, this is when I where I talk about scientific studies and just like make up the facts. Um, Mm -hmm. but there's, I've, I've learned something about learning where it was like the way you learn is actually by, by successfully remembering something. So that Mm -hmm. sounds a little bit like circular reasoning, but I don't think it is. It's just that you, you have to like drill it into your head and it, um, the way you learn it is by just repeating it until you've learned it until you can remember it successfully. And then once you can remember it successfully a certain number of times, then now you can remember it successfully like forever. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. and, and putting, I think putting some time in between those reviews does make a lot of sense. So I'm interested in that. I I like that idea of, you know, and maybe I'll try that with my current class. We did a, we did a full test last night and we'll review that test tomorrow night in class, Mm -hmm. but it would be useful to tell people to flag, you know, pick, Pick five questions where tonight you felt like the light bulb really went on for you, where where you were like, oh, I see why the right answer is right. Mm-hmm. And then, but but then flag those, and then a week later, assign them all to go back and look at those five again and try them again to just reinforce that that learning moment. Yeah. That's what you're yeah. talking about, right? No, that's exactly it. Okay. Um, I think part of the reason I started doing it was because there was definitely questions that people would get wrong, you know, whether it was in tutoring or in class. Uh, in some ways, they're kind of predictable which questions they get wrong. We go over them. Uh, there's There seems to be complete understanding. I have them explain it back to me. Oh, yeah, I totally get this. And then, you know, a month or so down the line, we encounter another question that suffers from the exact same problem, and they make the same mistake, and it's sort of like, do you remember that one question? Uh, some people don't even remember it. Some people remember it, but don't really remember what they thought about it. <laughs> so it's just kind of a way to like take those things you've learned and not lose them. Because it's it's unfortunate if you have to keep, you know, learning it again. You want to like learn it and internalize it like you're saying. So then you can then take advantage of that information, especially since there's not that many things I think that we have to learn. We just have to learn them really no. well. Yeah, yeah. My philosophy for that has always been, well, let's move on to new tests because we're always going to encounter those same concepts again on new tests. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe encountering them again on 
the exact same question. Maybe there actually is value, specific value in, in doing that intentionally, returning to the exact same question in order to reinforce it. I've never thought about that. that that's interesting. Um, again, this is one where I think we would both love to hear from our listeners. Um, if, if anybody out there is doing anything like this, you could email us at uh, help at thinkinglsat.com and we'd love to hear about your strategies for reviewing that way. This does um, certainly uh, argue against this idea that people have of like saving tests or being really worried about repeating tests. Yes. Um, because here it's almost like, well, actually you should be intentionally repeating tests so that you can reinforce the things that you've learned. Yeah, I think people are worried about it because they're like, well, my score is biased, which it definitely will be. But it's like, until you can execute a test and get a 178 or higher, there's something that despite your handicap, you're not quite able to understand or do quickly. Or yeah, right. Yeah. When you say handicap there, people probably might interpret that the wrong way. But yeah, right. Despite the fact that you've seen it before, if you're still missing the questions, then there must be something that you don't quite grasp. Yes, I'm sorry. I was perfectly like, to like golf. Yeah, golf right. Exactly. Handicap. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, uh, yeah. By, by 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 that I mean you have the advantage of having seen the test before, right. but still not really doing it nearly perfect. Says there's something that you can still get out of it, or that you didn't take away the first time. Yeah. Okay. So so repeating does sound good. Um, and then about this focusing on particular areas, I guess you would just as the as the test date gets closer, you would probably be recommending that people focus on their weaknesses, I would imagine. Yeah, so for some people that may be nothing. I mean, it kind of depends on where you're scoring too. Like people who are scoring much higher are probably going to do less targeted stuff unless they have a very specific weakness. But usually when people are scoring high, it's just random questions that throw them off. It's the difficulty of the question, not a particular type necessarily or something about that. But if you're finding yourself doing particularly poorly in games and your sections are not, you know, the number you're getting wrong in each section is not evenly distributed, then in addition to doing the full-length tests and the individual time sections, I would say go ahead and target stuff, especially when you're, when you all you have is like 15 minutes. You know, maybe you don't have time to do a 35-minute section, but you could do a game. That's what you should be focusing on in those in-between times. Yeah. Games, um, particularly, I think, are fruitful for study in the last couple weeks. I've told this story a million times, but I didn't make my big leap in the logic games until I was like four or five days away from my actual test. Hmm. Um, and it's just, you know, I identified that as an obvious weakness. I worked on it a lot. I did at least a couple sections worth of games every single day. Probably not a lot, a lot more than that because I'm not a really super hard worker. You know, I only have two or three hours worth of actual work in me in a day. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, and like when I had jobs, I would spread those two or three hours out over a whole, you know, nine hours worth of fake work. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think you're alone, dude. <laughs> no, I, right. Obviously not. Um, so I just hammered on the games at the last minute, and yeah, it, it totally paid off. And I, I think it still can pay off for uh, anybody out there who has a weakness in games and you've only got a couple weeks left. I would definitely not give up on that. Um, my, the, the person who I feel like has the best opportunity for, for big, 
quick improvement is the person who's strong in the reading comprehension and logical reasoning and weak in the logic games. That to me still is, is the biggest opportunity that anybody has. So if that's you with a couple weeks left and you're struggling on the games, I mean, I would just say do games every single day because it's, it's possible to pick up six or eight points, right? In, in mm-hmm. just the last minute on the games. Yeah. I have a student uh, in my, sorry, I was just going to run through some sure. numbers. I have a student in my class right now um, who on last night's test, she got 18 on the reading comprehension, 22 on both of the logical reasoning sections, and then 12 on the games mm. for a 159. Mm-hmm. And I, I think she's going to obviously get into the 160s. I mean, really easily, it seems yeah. like. She should get yeah. into the 160s just by, even if all she does is just practice games, you can't score 22 on both logical reasoning sections and still score 12 on the game. It just, yeah. like it doesn't, the logical reasoning is so much harder than the games. So um, that's, I know people think that's not true, but the more you study it, the more you'll realize that the games is actually the easy section. And if you just keep drilling it, you'll, I think you'll come to agree. Yeah. Sorry, Ben, I, I interrupted you. No, no, I, that's great. I think um, I would just add to that, if you're feeling pretty good about the games, the next section I would decide to focus on, if you're not sure, would be logical reasoning because I still feel like it's easier to improve than reading comp and it accounts for two of the sections. So. Yeah, and I think I would probably specifically tell people to focus on must-be-true questions um, because the reading comprehension questions are almost all must-be-true questions. And if there's one consistent weakness that I see, particularly with high scorers, so you mentioned earlier, Ben, like a student who's trying to make it from 165 to 170. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's shocking how often those students don't really understand the importance of must-be-trues and how, how many different questions are must-be-trues. Yeah. So did we talk about this? Recently, it's ringing a bell. Maybe I've just been talking about it with a lot of students, but the question that says, um, which one of the following can be properly inferred from the statements above? Yeah. I've had a lot of people, I've had a lot of people telling me that that's an inference question. Um, uh, so that's, that's, I would call that an inference question as well, but that's because I, be, that's because I call must be true questions inference questions. I see. Okay. Yeah. I, I just, I've had people calling that, I've had people saying, well, there's must be true questions and then there's inference questions. Yes. There's no difference. Okay. I that's, agree with that 100%. Yeah. And this, this pops up on the reading comprehension and it also pops up on the logical reasoning a lot. They are not, when they ask you which one of the following can be properly inferred, all they're asking you is just which one of the following must be true. Mm-hmm. Which one of the mm-hmm. following has to be true? So I find especially high scorers miss that question a lot because they think, well, no, this can't be the answer because it's too obvious. Yeah, I'm supposed yeah, yeah. to be inferring something here. Yeah. Well, no, that, I can't pick that one because they explicitly stated that. Mm-hmm. And I, I say, no, 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 no. <laughs> you're, not, you're just not understanding what they're asking you. They're, all they're asking you is which one of these has to be true. Yeah, I see what you're saying, because I, I guess I'm defining an inference as anything that must be true, whereas they're thinking of it more nuanced. They're thinking, oh, it's it can't be something that was said, because then you wouldn't infer that. 
Um, right. I think that yeah. an inference yeah. could be something that was necessarily assumed, mm -hmm. or an inference mm -hmm. can be something that was explicitly stated. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So just be careful with that. And this this pops up a lot on the reading comprehension as well. Um, it, it'll sometimes it'll be in a slightly different context too, like um, which with which one of the following would the author be most likely to agree? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that question as well, if you miss a lot of those questions, the odds are you're missing it because you're going further than what the, the um, passage actually justifies you to go. Mm -hmm. That when they ask you which one would the author be most likely to agree with, they really don't want you to put words in the author's mouth. They really want you to pick the one that the author basically already said. Yeah. Now, it will sometimes be a combination of two ideas, so it's not necessarily something that you've found in the passage, but it, it's going to be very, very close. Yeah. It's, it's going to be something that's right on the, the edge there. Ideally, it will feel like something that the author already said. Mm -hmm. And you can for sure get rid of things that are different from what the author said or, you know, that violate what the author said or that are completely out of just not the same thing at all of, as what the author was talking about. And yeah. you, you're narrowing it down and you're getting closer and closer to the one that the author actually has already said. Yeah. And because that would be the ideal answer is just something that the author had explicitly said. Mm -hmm. All right, moving on. I, I have, uh, I got two questions from students who consider themselves to be non-traditional. Um, I got them kind of back to back. They're almost exactly the same topic, so I figured we could just address them both at once. I'm gonna paraphrase sure. these. Um, I've, I've edited them down and I'm gonna paraphrase them. But um, I got an email from Megan, which said, uh, I'm an avid listener of the podcast. I graduated from Emerson College with a BA in visual and media arts, a specialty in documentary production. Since graduating in 2012, I've worked on a television show, um, and I'm looking to go back to school in fall of 2016 for immigration law. Megan asks, would my undergraduate and work experience be beneficial to me, or would it be looked down upon by schools since I did not take typically rigorous classes, she says. I don't, I'm not sure what she means really by that. If so, is there something I could do to make up for this lack of traditional criteria? So, okay. Megan graduated in 2012, studied uh, documentary production, BA in visual and media arts. She wants to know if going back to law school, that's going to be a problem for her. Then um, let me just do, read Emily's email as well quickly. Sure. Uh, Emily says, I'm coming to law from a bit of an unusual background. I spent a few years in Europe singing opera and working on a Fulbright and then decided that the lifestyle of classical singing was not for me. Um, the other day, someone I work with mentioned something about me being a little bit old to be starting law school. I'm almost 26. <laughs> is okay, that... not too old. Sorry. I just had to... Let's just interject that right now. Yeah. Is that a valid concern? Question mark. The majority of schools I'm looking at are top 14, if that helps give you an idea. So first, just let me say thank you to Megan and thank you to Emily. And now two old guys are gonna <laughs> give you some advice a little bit um yeah so what do you there looks like they're both about the same age actually yeah so i apologize uh for laughing but the 26 <laughs> is definitely not too old in fact, almost 26 <laughs> 
Oh, almost 26. Oh, so 25. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, I think most people actually, what's the median age in law school? Isn't it like 20? Median, 25? probably right around there. The mean is definitely older. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about that. I, I mean, one thing about this, you, you introduce these two people as non-traditional applicants. I, I think they consider themselves to be non-traditional, both because they think they're a little bit older and also because they have these artistic backgrounds. Yes. So I, I agree that that's maybe a little unique, but I wouldn't say it's non-traditional. When I think of non-traditional, I'm thinking of someone who's in their 40s or 30, late 30s and saying, I want to do a career change, so I'm going to apply to law school. And then I think they're considered by the law school in a totally different regard. Um, but you know, maybe even mid thirties or something like that. But like in this mid twenties, that's just, that's your typical applicant. And I think having a little bit of work experience when I hear two or three years, to me, that's, that's pretty normal. It is true that these, these artistic backgrounds are different, but I would just leverage that uh, to their advantage, make that like something that they are, they're going to bring to the classroom, the class profile, you know, a different perspective that all the people who worked as paralegals are not going to bring. They have no experience. I mean, the, the, Emily, right, was a Fulbright. So that's that's impressive in of itself. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I, so the age thing first is absolutely not an issue at all. Um, the typical law student is in their 20s. A big chunk of them went straight from undergraduate right into law school, but that is not definitely doesn't make up anywhere close to half of the class. Um, most people have worked for, I would say the, the most common student has probably worked for a year or two before starting law school. Mm -hmm. um, and so anything in your 20s is not even going to be remarkable at all. Um, I was in law school in my 30s, and I didn't feel old compared to the rest of the class. Mm -hmm. um, so the age thing is is absolutely not an issue at all. And if you're 25 or 26 or 29, um, the clock is not ticking. You have all the time in the world and you shouldn't be, even, you know, that shouldn't even be crossing your mind, I don't think. Yeah, and by the way, we should add to this right now. Um, people who are that age, who are 29, 30, whatever, and they're saying, well, I need to apply now and I need to take the LSAT now because I just can't wait another year just imagine that you're going to be practicing law for like 30 years or more. Don't let a lower LSAT score ruin your law school choices because you felt like you had to go today rather than a yeah. year from now. What difference does it matter? What difference does it make if you practice law for 29 years or if you practice law for 30 years? Who who cares? What's the difference? Yeah. Um, but what is the difference is if you rack up $150,000 in debt that you didn't necessarily need to have, you know, you could have waited another year and got a better LSAT score and got a full ride to law school. Yeah. Um, or yeah, going to a school that if you could have gotten into much better schools, if you would have waited another year, uh, that, you know, the, the, the diploma is going to follow you around to every law office you, you ever work in for your entire career. Yeah. And so just think about that. You know, you're going to be carrying this thing around for those 30 years. Uh, what do you want it to say on it? Mm -hmm. And how much do you want to have paid for it? So the age thing is just not it's not an issue. Um, they're not going to discriminate against you. And it's just not it's not a factor. The the 
I think they probably both were more interested in the artistic background. Um, Megan's yeah. in documentary production and Emily was an opera singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Ben, you, you said, well, no, that's a strength. You can work that into being a, a strong point. And I totally, absolutely. <laughs> it's, um, if I were Megan, I would love to see what her personal statement would look like if she wrote it about whichever television show she's been working on. Plus, if she if she can, well, it sounds like she could do a good job with this. But a lot of schools they have like these optional non, uh, non traditional, <laughs> non traditional application. Well, so you're saying choices. she could like make a documentary about herself? Yeah, if yeah. she you know if she feels like she could do it in a in a good way that would be interesting. Um, I mean, these things are going to be short anyways, but most people aren't going to do that. And if they do it, it's probably going to be not so good. So, yeah, I, I think this is nothing but a benefit. You know, I think she's worried that she didn't study, study political science. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think the law schools are going to care about that at all. She has a good GPA. She has GPA again, 3.5, 3.5. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what I, I, don't know what law schools think of that that undergrad it, you know it's probably it's probably not viewed as rigorously as like say physics or something extreme like that but it's not going to hurt her but that's unusual anyway right i mean most applicants studied political science history criminal justice english um right like yeah not those are none of those are engineering yeah um none of those are physics or math so this visual media arts documentary production, I mean, one, it's way more interesting to me than a political science degree. And it's got to be just as difficult as a political science degree. I mean, how, or I would presume that it is. Well, I don't have any reason to presume that it's not. Yeah. So I don't think the, the, your major there is going to cost you anything at all. And if you can emphasize your interesting work that you've done on a TV show or uh, interesting documentaries that you've made, or as Ben suggests, if you can actually submit some video about yourself, I think that's going to be nothing but a positive and it's going to make you look like a diverse, interesting person. That's going to really contribute something to the classroom rather than just being just like everybody else. Yeah. Um, same thing with Emily, right? Yeah. Op- opera singer. Yeah. That's she amazing. spent a few years in Europe singing opera. I mean, that to me is a personal statement that will be actually unique. Yeah. Like, like there might not ever be anyone who did that who has applied to the, whatever law school you're looking at. Yeah. So now you have an opportunity to, to clearly stand out. And, um, you know, I don't think you need, it's not like you need to spin that into like, and this is how it prepared me for a legal career. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't know that that's how you need to write it because that might be really difficult. But just to point out the fact that you have done something different and interesting in your life, you know, it's a personal statement, right? It's, it's, it's about, it's supposed to be about who you are. So that background um, of classical singing, I think, is, it's going to demonstrate that you excelled at something. Yeah, it's going to demonstrate that you were passionate about something. Um, I would love to see, you know, Emily's personal statement about what it was like to be an opera singer. If nothing else, you're going to entertain the person who is reading your application and they're going to really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just can't imagine that that's going to hurt at all. You know, 
here she Emily is specifically talking about applying to like elite schools. Mm-hmm. I think this plays even better at elite schools, doesn't it? Oh yeah, this this is the kind of thing that they're gonna be impressed by. Yeah, I think yeah. yeah that you really are someone who stands out and who you're someone who who knows what it takes to be the best at something. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I I don't think there's anything to worry about, and I think actually both of these listeners are in really great shape. I agree. All right. So thanks for your questions. Um, you can get both of us. Uh, ben is Ben at strategyprep.com and I am Nathan at foxlsat.com. Um, and keep your questions coming because we, we love to hear from you. Um, what do you think, Ben? Time for one question from the June 2007 test? Yeah, let's do it. Or did you want to talk about paradox questions? Oh, yeah. Um, so there was a question I got that was saying that this person struggles with paradox questions um, and they were just wondering if we had any tips and I think in particular they were struggling with the assumptions that they can make with the answer choices hmm. so they felt like that the, the correct answers almost always rely on assumptions they didn't feel like we could make or that test takers couldn't make or something like that. I don't know what to think about that. I, I guess I would have to look at a specific question really to have much thoughts. What What did you want to say about it? Um, I guess I'm just curious what advice you p- give people in general for those kinds of for questions. For paradox questions. I call them yeah. explanation questions because that's what the LSAC calls them. Um, so on an explanation question, you're presented with a mystery of sorts and then you're asked to find an answer that would solve that mystery. Um, So I look at it in really kind of three steps. The first step is before you start looking at those answer choices, it's critical that you understand what the mystery is. Um, You can't, you know, go out into the mystery mobile and start trying to solve a murder if you don't know who was murdered or if you don't, you know, you need a crime first to investigate. So, the first thing is read that stimulus closely enough so that you know exactly what the the supposed mystery is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually just two facts that seem like they don't quite make a sen- make sense in um, in simultaneously. They don't seem compatible with each other. Yeah. Uh, so figure out what the mystery is. That's step one. Step two is I would I would propose. A solution to the mystery so I would say like well what about X and it's a little bit hard to discuss this in the complete abstract but um, it's like well give me a solution that would make it so that these first two facts which you thought were incompatible tell me something that would make those two compatible like explain you explain it to me and I, I like to do this before looking at the answer choices again the point there is not that you're going to actually be able to predict exactly the answer, although sometimes you will, but it's not so much to predict exactly what the answer is as it is to predict the type of thing that would be an acceptable answer. Mm-hmm. So figure out what's the mystery, that's step one, then come up with an explanation for the mystery, that's step two, and then go into the answer choices and find, you're looking for something that is at least as good as your explanation or at you're looking for something satisfying basically so 
step one of, you know, what's the mystery, you should be kind of scratching your head there. You should be thinking like, oh yeah, huh, how is it that this is true and this is true simultaneously? Hmm. And then when you find the correct answer, the correct answer should be satisfying like, oh, I, I get, okay, yeah, that would make it make sense. Yeah. So that's what, that's how I like to teach um, those explanation questions. Yeah, that's uh, pretty much the same thing that I suggest. Um, the only little thing that I add to it is that in step one, when I'm asking people to figure out what the mystery is, sometimes um, I'll encourage them to turn it into a why question. Uh, and my why question is why one of the facts, even though the other. Yeah, I like that. Uh-huh because then they don't lose sight of the other fact. And when they're going through the answer choices, the correct answer should answer that question, like you said, and be satisfying. Like you should be like, okay, now I know why this is happening, even though this other thing is happening. Yeah, how can this and this be true simultaneously? I like that, why this, even though this? Mm -hmm. I like that a lot, yeah. And then the correct answer is like, oh, I see why this, even though this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Uh, does that cover it? I think so. Okay. We, I mean, it'd be helpful as more, like you said, if we had an actual example, but I think that's a good start for now. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, do you want to do one question from the June 2007 test? Yeah. So right now... We have, we're on question four, okay. but I just noticed that question five is an explanation question. So maybe we should do that one. Count as evidence again, are you sure? Oh, no, I'm just reading too quickly. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> I saw, okay, never mind. So that's a weakened question. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go to four then. Yeah, we'll, so, we'll find an explanation question one of these days. No, don't worry. Yeah. So let me, I'll just read this. Um, yeah, by the way, we're in the June 2007 LSAT. If, if uh, you want to follow along with us, you can just Google June 2007 LSAT and you'll find the PDF will pop right up. And this is a free test, so we can discuss this content on the show. So yeah, number four in section two. Okay. So number four uh, says consumer. So this is a consumer talking. The consumer says, the latest uh, Connerly report suggests that oh man why did i agree to read this <laughs> you didn't <laughs> agree you volunteered names. i did volunteer yeah but uh um okay how would you pronounce his name oxenfree oxenfree thanks i'm really bad at pronouncing things okay. the class always makes fun of me for it oxenfree prepackaged meals so i gotta start over the latest the latest report suggests that oxenfree prepackaged meals are virtually devoid of nutritional value but the Connerly Report is commissioned by Danto Foods, Oxenfree's largest corporate rival. And early drafts of the report are submitted for approval to Danto's Foods Public Relations Department. Because of the obvious bias of this report, it is clear that Oxenfree's prepackaged meals are really nutritious. Okay, so uh, thoughts? So... Um, the most important thing is to just get really pissed off at the conclusion of this argument. And here the conclusion um, is signaled by the words, it is clear that. Um, and 
they actually say a couple of bad words in this conclusion. I want people to be on the lookout for things like the word obvious and the word clear or clearly, because on the LSAT, those words are really frequently, they mean, okay, I'm about to bullshit you now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, think about the tone of this. Because of the obvious bias of this report, it is clear that oxen-free's prepackaged meals really are nutritious. No, no, it's not obvious, and it's not clear. Now, it the facts did say that the report was commissioned by Danto Foods, and that's a corporate rival, and that the public relations department is submitting, you know, reviewing drafts of the report and all that. Um, I'm actually kind of seeing two flaws in one here. Okay. So the first is just because someone is biased does not mean that they're wrong. Yeah. Um, Danto Foods did this report and the report said, Hey, these prepackaged meals from oxen free have no nutritional value. Yeah. But just because they produced the report does not. And, and because they have, you know, they, they, they might clearly have a bias against you and they might clearly want you to be destroyed. Okay. They are your largest corporate rival. So yes, they hate you fine. Mm-hmm. But just because they hate you doesn't mean they're wrong. Okay, so that's that's the first potential flaw that I'm seeing here. And that's a common flaw, right? That's tested all the time? Sure, yeah. Okay, so, so one thing to watch out for, again, just because you're biased doesn't mean you're wrong. And then the next flaw that I see here is in the conclusion, this conclusion goes way too far. It says, because there's bias, it's clear that Oxenfray's prepackaged meals really are nutritious. So... It's not, it didn't even stop at because you're biased, therefore we have to throw out your report. Mm-hmm. That would have been one thing. And that would have been one flaw. Yeah. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop at we have to throw out your report. It actually goes to the absurd. We're going to conclude that the exact opposite of your report is true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So because you're biased, that proves the opposite of what you were trying to prove. Yeah. And that's a distinct flaw on the LSAT. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess, yeah. So we got here, we've got two flaws in the same question. By the way, do you have a name for that last flaw? I just always say um, disproving an argument doesn't prove the opposite. Okay. But I'm sure there, that's got to be a fallacy, right? I mean, somebody out there email us and tell us what the name of that fallacy is so that we know, but it's, that there's got to be some sort of a of a fallacy to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, like if if I said um, the example that I use in class for that is I say like I'm going to take the train home tonight, therefore I know that I will get home before midnight. And if someone comes in and says, "Hey, the train is not running," therefore you're not going to get home before midnight. Mm-hmm that's flawed because I might have alternate routes to get home before midnight. Mm-hmm. It's a lot like confusing a sufficient condition for a necessary condition. Now that I think about it, yeah. but, but it's, it's, it's different. It's just, it's just when you disprove an argument, all you do is you remove that justification for that conclusion. You don't actually 
prove the opposite of that conclusion by ruining an argument. Yeah, it, it sounds similar to the idea that no evidence does not mean, for something does not mean that thing is false. Right, absence of an argument or absence of evidence does not prove the opposite of the argument. Cool. Okay, so anyways, again, we're still on number two, uh, number four from section two of the June 2007 LSAT. And I think we've got two flaws here. One is just because you're biased doesn't mean you're wrong. And the other one is um, even if you have to throw away this Connerly report, it doesn't prove the opposite of what the Connerly report claimed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so the question then says, the reasoning in the consumer's argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that the argument... Now that phrase, most vulnerable to criticism, I always identify that as a flaw question. Yeah. I've never seen that language anywhere else, have you? I don't think so, no. This is definitely a flaw question. I mean, I knew it was a flaw question just after reading the argument. You, you get so good at it that you can just tell what they're going to ask you. Um, but yeah, the, this question stem, the reasoning in the consumer's argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the following grounds. That I would definitely put that in the flaw category. They're asking you to identify a flaw that is inherent in the argument. Yeah. And I, I would treat this kind of like a must-be-true question um, in that when I pick, whatever answer I pick, I have to find evidence in the argument that, that the argument actually did whatever I'm going to accuse them of doing. Wait, hold on. Say that again. Must be true. Well, <clears throat> flaw questions are different from weakened questions. Yes, I In agree. that weakened questions are asking you which one of the following, if true, would most attack the argument. Mm -hmm. But flaw questions are more evidence-based, where whatever answer I pick, I have to be able to point in the argument. I have to be able to show in the argument where they did whatever it is that I'm accusing them of doing. That makes sense. So it's like a must-be-true question. In that, it's an evidence-based question. Yeah. I agree. So actually, that's interesting. I um, I tell people to ask themselves two questions when they're doing a flaw question Okay. as they're going through the answer choices. And I think that my first question is kind of what you're describing here. My first question is, is this actually happening? Yeah, did they do it? Did they do that? And then the second question is, is that a problem? Yeah, I like that a lot. Yes. We're, and yeah, so it sounds like, yeah, so the, we're asking ourselves the same question at the beginning um, because we have to make sure that the passage actually supports that answer choice in the sense that it's describing something that actually happened. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Okay, and, so, you know, not to mention that we, we, I think we've already answered it, right? Like the, the two flaws that we identified, I'm going to be really surprised if one of those is not the right answer for this question. Yeah. Uh, have we talked about this before? Um, I mean, this is an, an earlier flaw question. It's number four, so it's almost, it, it is going to be one of those two. It's got to be. But for like harder flaw questions, sometimes you'll have two flaws, but then the the obvious flaw won't actually appear in the answer choices, and then you have to go back and find another more subtle flaw. Yes. Right. And that, I mean, that could be, this could be an, an easier version of that, right? Because it could. There yeah. are two flaws here, and only one of them is going to be listed in the answer choices. Yeah. So if you got stuck on the, hey, just because you're biased doesn't mean you're wrong, that 
you know, that might not be the answer. The, the answer might be, well, even if we do have to throw out this report, that doesn't prove the opposite of what the report was trying to prove. Yeah. So that, that could be a harder version of, even though this is kind of in the easier section. Yeah, exactly. So answer choice A says, the argument treats evidence that there is an apparent bias as evidence that the Connor Lee report claims are false. Um, what do you think? I think that's it. I think so. I mean, it, it does suggest that there's bias, right? There, there's it, The argument provides evidence that there is an apparent bias mm -hmm. by saying, hey, this is commissioned by our largest corporate rival and early drafts of the report go to their public relations department. You know, that's evidence of apparent bias. Mm -hmm. And then it does conclude that the Connerly Report's claims are therefore false. Yeah. So did they do it? Yes. Is that a problem? Yes, it's a flaw that has been tested many, many times on the LSAT. So I'm pretty sure that's the answer. Yeah. So as we go through these last four, now this is something I tend to do. I will, if I'm feeling pretty good about the answer, when I read the last four, I will stop reading an answer choice as soon as I know it's wrong. And I won't necessarily finish it out. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I do finish, I should say I do finish it, but I... There's a certain point where I start to think, okay, this is this is gone. Yeah, and right. So that's a an important point. Is just you know, if you're going to go fast on the LSAT, the place where you go fast is in the answer choices, not in the argument. And specifically, you go fast in skim in eliminating answers that you just know can't be the answer. Yeah. So especially if this was like a parallel reasoning question, that's where I do that a lot. Parallel reasoning questions, I'll frequently only read the first sentence of. An, of an answer choice that I know is wrong. Mm -hmm. I can know it's wrong after one sentence and then I can just skip on to the other answer choices. Now, um, one thing you have to be careful there of though is the fact that in parallel reasoning, the order of the premises and the conclusion can be different, right? So I guess you're being aware of what you're reading when you're reading that first sentence. You know it's a premise or something like that, maybe? Um. Yeah, right. So <laughs> I just don't, I, I mean, I, I, I just don't want people to oversimplify what you're, no, you, you've got to be pretty good at it in order to know what I'm talking about. But um, suppose there, the given argument was like some A are B and some B are C, therefore some A are C, something like that. Yes. And yes. when an answer starts off with like all A are B, sure. then I'm probably Perfect. like, well, that's done. Yeah, it doesn't matter because we never saw all anywhere in the passage. So all anywhere in the correct answer or yeah. in that answer would be wrong. Yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's what I'm talking about there. Cool. Yeah, anyway, makes sense. Um, one thing that I do like to do, though, on these flaw questions is I like to think about, because the flaws are just tested over and over, and the wrong answers are frequently describing real LSAT flaws. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I like to do is just, you can, you can master the flaw questions. I mean, I think the flaw questions are actually pretty easy because you get so familiar with the flaws that you can read the wrong answers and go, oh, well, I know what the argument would have had to have said in order to make this the right answer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like with B, draws a conclusion based solely on an unrepresentative sample of oxen-freeze products. What do you think about that? Nope, we never talked about samples. Um, so Yeah, I mean, there never was even a sample. So that, you know, did they do that? Yeah. No, they did not do that. Yeah. Um, it would be a problem, though, if they had. But the argument would have had to say something like, you know, we went to the oxen-free 
product. We grabbed one of their Twinkies out of the garbage can, and we found that it had no pre- it had no nutritional value. Therefore, none of Oxenfree's products have nutritional value. Yeah. Right. That's what would make B the right answer, and that was just clearly not there. Yeah. What about C? C fails to take into account the possibility that Oxenfree has just as much motivation to create negative publicity for Danto as Danto has to create negative publicity for Oxenfree. So, yeah, what are your thoughts? Um, it's it's a little bit hard to say did they do it because fails to take into account means you know did not mention. Yeah, so I guess the answer to that question would be actually... Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. They failed to consider this possibility. They did fail to consider this possibility, but that doesn't mean they failed. You know, failed just means did not do. Yes, that's right. It right. doesn't mean it was wrong. So that's so did they do it? Yes. Is it a problem? No. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a problem either. So C is kind of like saying, well, you have just as much motivation to create negative publicity for them as they do for you. Yeah. That's not. That's just not the point. Yeah, well, it, it almost suffers from the same problem that the argument suffers from. It assumes that bias is relevant to whether something is or is not nutritious. I mean, it is relevant, yeah. but it's not definitive. Yeah. Okay. So C is like kind of. It's kind of like finger pointing. It's it's actually easy to get past it once you've already read A and you know that that was a flaw that was present in the argument. Yeah. C C is not a problem. D says. Fails to provide evidence. Well, it, I'm sure it does this, right? Yeah. Fail. I'm sure it did not provide evidence that Danto Foods prepackaged meals are not more nutritious than oxen phrase are. Mm-hmm. It did fail. It did fail to provide this evidence, but it's not a problem because we don't really care about Danto Foods prepackaged meals. The argument's not about their their meals. Yeah, the argument has nothing to do with Danto Foods meals the argument has everything to do with whether oxen freeze prepackaged meals are or are not nutritious yep. whether danto's foods are better or worse has nothing to do with anything yeah all right so the last one presumes without providing justification that danto's foods public relations department would not approve a draft of a report that was hostile to danto foods product hmm so I think this is kind of wordy. So one thing I like to do is take the whole presumes without providing justification and just replace that with necessarily assumes. Okay. Or just even assumes. Yeah. I, the only reason I add the necessarily is because it is a necessary assumption. And so sometimes it can make it easy to get rid of these answer choices if they just go a little too far. And you say, oh, that's not necessary. Therefore, okay. it's not happening. Okay. Yeah. So did they necessarily assume that Danto Foods Public Relations Department would not approve of a draft of a report that was hostile to Danto Foods products? Um, so are they assuming this, that they would not approve a draft that was hostile to Danto Foods? I, I think they might have suggested it, <laughs> yeah. but I don't think that they necessarily assumed it. Yeah, this is. Uh, I think this is probably the most tempting... Wrong answer. Yeah. I think that they 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 kind of hint at it, right? They they why did they bring up the why did they bring up the public relations department? Well, mm-hmm. they brought up the public relations department because they wanted to suggest that hey, Danto Foods PR people looked at this, so it's bogus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they didn't actually say Danto Foods would 
you know, because Danto Foods PR department would never uh, approve a draft of a report that was hostile to Danto Foods products, that it, it's it's not a necessary component of the argument. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't really. It, it, this kind of gets to the, like the in between between the last premise and the conclusion, which was, went right from bias to nutritious, and so that's that's the real flaw. Like even if this answer choice E is true, it wouldn't get us, like even if we were to fix this problem, it wouldn't get us to the idea that they're nutritious. Right, the argument would still be flawed even if it was true that Danto's PR department would never release something that was hostile to their own product. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm also a little bit skeptical of E because it, it specifically says hostile to Danto Foods products. Yeah. But wasn't the report about oxen freeze prepackaged meals? Yeah, exactly. So we have to make the assumption that if they say something positive about oxen free, that that's hostile. Hostile to, to Danto's products. Yeah. Which I don't necessarily think has to be true. I mean, they it says that they are large corporate rivals, but that doesn't mean that they even produce the same things at all. Yeah. Um. Okay. So anyways, I think there's maybe a few different reasons to get rid of E. The best reason to get rid of E is that A is, uh, you know, such a great answer and something that we predicted before we even looked at the answer choices. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so the answer is A. Um, well, boy, we're about an hour and fifteen minutes in. We probably should wrap it up. Is there anything else uh, that you wanted to talk about today, Ben? No, that's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, please let your friends know that you're listening to the Thinking LSAT podcast. Uh, I recommend just grabbing their iPhone and going on iTunes and subscribing for them so that and showing them how it works because a lot of people don't even know how to listen to podcasts. So uh, get them hooked, get them subscribed, and uh, send us your questions so that we'll have um, stuff to talk about next time. Yeah. Uh, oh, one last thing, Ben. Update on the sample chapter from the awesome Logic Games book that we're going to put out. Oh man, it's so it's so so close. Um, it's uh, it's just it's about to be sent to you. Um, Sweet. Uh, it's just uh, just needs some. Just need to click send in my email. That's really it. Wow. That doesn't seem like that would take that long. No, it doesn't. Because I'm kind of I'm not telling the whole truth, but. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so we're getting closer, and um, I really like what uh, Eric has done with the cover. I guess we've finalized that, right? So yeah, I think we have a cover, and uh, everybody's going to see that cover very soon with a sample chapter of the book. Uh, that's going to be the Thinking LSAT Logic Games playbook, and it's going to be coming out uh, very soon. So go to thinkinglsat.com and subscribe to our newsletter so that you can get that free chapter as soon as it comes out. Yeah. All right, that's it. Thanks, guys. Uh, We'll talk to you next time.